You are listening to a sermon from the season of Lent at Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, visit us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. Honestly, there's part of me that feels like I should just skip my sermon this morning, um, that we should just make you sit for 20 minutes with the weight of that reading of the Passion and the Crucifixion um, and just stop there because the, the reading itself is so powerful. And yet I'm here and so I'm going to talk. Um, I often struggle to answer questions that involve the word favorite. My kids will sometimes ask me what my favorite color is so that they can work on an art project for me. And I have the problem that I don't really have a favorite color. I mean, I love the blues of the sky and the sea. I love the greens of fields and forest. I love the red of the Japanese maple. I was just back in South Carolina, and there's a brilliant Japanese maple in the backyard of um, my, my wife's family, and it's just wonderful to get to see it. I love the oranges of sunsets. I was sitting at my desk as I was writing this and thinking about how I like the brown of burnished wood. Any of those colors, if you took them away, those or a, a hundred other colors that I didn't name just now, the world would be diminished. How am I supposed to choose a favorite? Questions about my favorite book or movie? are similar. Um, Most of the time, they're just sort of met with this sort of blank look on my face as I try to run through everything I've ever watched or read or seen and figure out, wait a minute, okay, I know what I said last time somebody asked this question, but has it changed in the last, since the last time that I heard it? Which one's really my favorite? And by the way, what do they really mean by favorite anyway? Do they want the one that I like enjoy the most if I want to relax or the one that has had the deepest impact on me? How do I answer this question honestly? And I'll usually either come up with nothing because I'll be so paralyzed that I can't actually pick one name out of the hat or I'll come up with 12 things, and they ask for my favorite, and I start giving them a list of like 12 books. And I'm like, well, I like this one for this reason, and this one for that reason, and this one for that reason. Or sometimes, like, my senses come to me, and I realize that's not really an appropriate answer. So I just, like, give the answer that I usually give to the question. Even if it's not really my favorite, it's just sort of one of my favorites. Because I have to have an answer to the question. And so... I don't choose favorites lightly. It's a, it's a hard task. And I'm going to share with you, though, one of my favorite words. I can't say that it's right at the top. And besides, you probably think I'm weird that I have favorite words anyway. But this is my life. <laughs> but one of my favorite words is the word juxtaposition. <laughs> I mean, it has a J and an X. How can you get better than that? Can you imagine getting to play this in Scrabble? This week, I thought about how that would be possible. Someone would have to play the word position, and then I'd have to have juxta and add on to it, and there would just be this note of triumph in my face and in my voice that I got to play juxtaposition in a game of Scrabble, and it would fit on the board. I I checked. (laughs) But I first found this word in a small used bookstore that my family stopped in on a road trip when I was in high school. I honestly don't remember where we were going or where we were coming from. All I remember is the bookstore, which also tells you something about me. (laughs) But it was the title of a a fantasy book that was on the shelf, and it caught my interest. Um, And it was actually the third book in a series, but I just bought it anyway, um, and, and read that one before I read any of the others. 
And this was the days, in the days before the ubiquity of smartphones. And so I couldn't look up the word. In fact, because it was a fantasy book, I didn't even know it was a real word until later on when I was able to actually, like I found it occurring somewhere else and I went, wait a minute, that's, that's the same word. They, he didn't make that up. That actually means something. And I was able to look it up and figure out what it means. So juxtaposition is when you set two things side by side in order to be able to more clearly see the contrast between them. So you take two things and you set them side by side, and in doing so, you more clearly see the contrast between them. It's a common device in art and in literature. You can set elements right next to one another, and it highlights and brings them out more clearly. And it is at the very heart of the way that our Palm Sunday service is structured. Our Palm Sunday service is all about juxtaposition. We began the service outside where we heard the story of Jesus' climactic entry into Jerusalem. In all of the Gospels, this is something that has been preparing for for long before it actually happens. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem and he is headed in that direction. And there's a sense for those of us who know of the crucifixion already of dramatic irony in this, that as he is heading towards Jerusalem, uh, the, the disciples think that he is heading towards that moment where he is going to come into his glory, pronounce himself as the Christ, take up his authority, and we know this entire time that he's walking towards his death. He tells his disciples that, but they never quite understand and grasp what's actually going on. So at this moment where he is coming into Jerusalem, they see it as this moment of triumph. And his disciples who have gathered around him place him on a donkey, not a horse. They didn't have a horse for him to come in as a true conquering king. But he's placed on a donkey and he's coming in and they sing and they sing Hosanna. They see in this the moment of their long-awaited salvation where perhaps he's finally going to throw off the Romans. He's finally going to take up his authority and come into his power. And we heard that moment, and we entered into that ourselves as the disciples who gathered around him shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's this moment of beautiful chaos, as Nathan said. And the kids, I think, are the ones who get it the most. The kids are so happy to wave their palms, to sing their songs, to shout out Hosanna, to be just outside and moving around and understanding they can worship with their whole body and not in a little confined space. And in that, there's something beautiful about that, that they help us to enter into worship together. And it's this moment of joy. But then we come in and we sit down and our readings for the week begin. And we hear from Isaiah about how there's going to be a servant who suffers. And we hear from Paul talking about the humility of Christ. And then, of course, in something that is entirely unique to Palm Sunday, it's the only Sunday in the Anglican liturgy where we have two gospel readings. We hear another gospel reading. We hear the passion of the Christ. We hear of his betrayal. Judas probably sang with the others, Hosanna. And a few days later, he kissed him in the garden and handed him over to the Romans for 30 pieces of silver. 
We again find ourselves playing a part in the story on Palm Sunday. On our lips that had just sang Hosanna, there's that horrible, painful moment in the reading where Christine turned to us and said, People, what will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And all of us found on our lips the words, crucify him. These two readings, these two narratives, these two stories, and these, our way that we enter into them are set side by side with one another in a way that helps us to see more clearly what each of them really means. I mean, we can understand the joy of the disciples in that moment, their real, true, sincere hope for salvation, their thought that Jesus was the king who was long awaited. And we can feel those same disciples' disappointment, their sorrow, their confusion, at that moment where Jesus comes and, and pe- the people are gathered together to grab onto him. And they, they still are in this mindset that Jesus is the king, and so they pull out weapons. They're going to, to save him. They're going to bring to a climax this moment where we finally have the conflict with the authorities that we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, no, this is not the way. In other Gospels, Jesus tells them, there are legions of angels that are waiting for the command to come and rescue me. Do you think I need you to pull out your sword? But for this reason, the Son of Man came. To die. And he heals the ear of the servant who was struck. And the disciples scatter. It's embodied in Peter, right? Who, who is this one, he's the one who actually struck the servant, who pulled out his sword, who was convinced, I will never betray you. I will never turn away or fall away. And yet at that moment where Jesus was not who he expected him to be, he says, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't even know you. And of course, we always look at Peter's deceit, his self-protection, but there's a sense in which his whole world has been shattered where there's some truth in his words when he says that. He doesn't know who Jesus is because he doesn't understand why Jesus has come. And so we enter and see in the disciples their confusion and their disorientation in this moment, and we see it all the more clearly because we have just seen what they thought was coming. And it's not just the disciples' reactions that we see more clearly. It's who Jesus himself is. They didn't understand what they meant when they called him a king. They didn't understand what, who he really was. And yet they also struck at the truth. Jesus himself affirms this when the Pharisees come up at the end of that reading. And they have this moment where they say, Your disciples are calling you a king. Don't you know this is going to make trouble? This is a problem. Tell them to stop. 
Jesus doesn't chastise them for their misunderstanding. He doesn't say, well, they don't really understand what kind of kingdom I'm coming into right now. He doesn't do any of that. He says instead, if they were silent, the rocks would cry out. He is the king in truth, even for those who don't know what that means. He is the king in truth, and we see it in that moment, but we also see as we walk through the passion narrative and see the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that he is the one who Isaiah prophesied, who was pierced for our transgressions. He is the one who was crushed for our iniquities. He is the one who is the suffering servant. He is the king with humility who came to, to humble himself to death, even to death on a cross. And when these two things are set side by side, we see it all the more clearly. And then, of course, not only do we see the disciples' reactions, not only do we see who Jesus really is, but we also find the tension in our own hearts. Because just as it is right for the disciples to proclaim that Jesus is king, it was right and good that we went outside and sang Hosanna, that we proclaimed that Jesus is the king. At that moment in history, it was true. It is true forever. And we enter in and, and have on our lips the words of praise, just as we do every week when we gather together. We praise Jesus for who he is, for what he has done. We praise him as the king. But it is also right, it is appropriate that we should find the words crucify him on our own lips. Because in this tension we find one of the perhaps central paradoxes of the Christian faith, one of the pieces that's hardest to understand. It's a different sort of juxtaposition, things struck side by side that I can't avoid, that I don't only experience one Sunday out of the year, but that I experience over and over again each and every day in my own heart, as I am sure that you do in yours. We know Jesus to be the King. That's why we're gathered here this morning. We know Him to be the one who came to save us. We know Him to be good. We know Him to be God. And there is a part of me that desires nothing more than to serve him well, than to have my whole life oriented towards proclaiming his kingship. And he calls us to that. There's part of me that knows that this is where I will find the ultimate satisfaction of my heart, where I will rest, is when I turn and praise him. And yet there's another part of me. that turns away from him time and time again, that seeks after other things that never really satisfy. There's the part of me that is all too easily pleased, not by what my soul needs the most, but after smaller and lesser things. And this sort of tension is woven all throughout the Christian life. Not just the tension between proclaiming Jesus as Lord and finding myself turning to sin. But there's the tension between my experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit and then also sometimes just 
wanting to turn away and, and seek after things that are mundane. There's the ways in which I've seen God work miracles through his people. We have stories of healing here within this body, within this congregation that we can celebrate together. And we also have stories of prolonged pain, of people who have prayed with true faith for the healing of God. And he said, no. I know that I have real power and authority in the name of Christ. We have real power and authority in the name of Christ. And yet I also know that we are called to suffer. How can these things be true at the same time? How can all of these things hold together in the Christian life? How can we find our hearts drawn up to God and then also just wanting to go sit in the muck? How can we see his healing power in one moment and then wonder where he's at in another? This question is raised time and time again as we seek to follow after Christ. How can both of these things be true at the same time? Can they both be true at the same time? Or am I somehow fooling myself? Can we really be both saints and sinners? Can we really be both mighty and crushed? Can we really be filled with faith and disappointed in God? Here's the terrible thing about it. If I come to the answer that no, they cannot both be true at the same time, honestly, I'm probably most certain about my disappointments. I'm most certain about my failures. And so if these things cannot be true at the same time, then I have to decide that God's either not fully good, he's not fully powerful, or perhaps that my own relationship with him is somehow not real, that I haven't actually given myself to him, that I'm not actually one of the chosen. And down that path lies nothing but despair. But then I look again to Jesus. I look to the one who is both the king and the suffering servant. As Paul says, he's the son of God, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I see in Jesus the hope that both things can be true. That we can live with this tension where we see that the, the very one who is to be most glorified is also the one who suffers. then I can understand that it is both true that I am a sinner and God loves me. That he is with us even as we suffer. That he has my good in mind and that he has assured my good even when the world seems to be falling apart around me. Do you see it too? Do you understand that all of our hope lies in this one man being who he said he was? 
the very Son of God who went willingly to the cross. And it's not just because he sets an example for us, that he shows us the tension in his own life of being the one who was exalted and is now humbled. That's part of it, that we see in him a suffering that actually leads to glory. We see that suffering and glory aren't opposites of one another. We see that his suffering is a path that leads to his exaltation, and we understand that we are walking in the same path. So my suffering does not mean that I am somehow abandoned by God. My suffering instead is a path that God has placed me on, as we prayed today in the collect, that I can walk in the way of the cross. But at the end of the way of the cross, and here I'm going to spoil the story for you a little bit, there's resurrection. (laughs) We see that God's promises are fulfilled in the midst of agony and despair. We understand that the very path that Christ walked of humility is our path. That God was working good in what is the most evil thing I can consider man to have ever done. And God was working good in it. And if God can turn this to good, how can I claim that anything that happens in my life, he can't also redeem? This is the hope that we begin, that we enter into together here on Palm Sunday. This is the hope that we will enter into all of Holy Week. As we walk with Christ, as sort of time slows down, we have all these services that we come to together because we are remembering the way that Christ has walked. And we are understanding this more than just as the way that we are to walk, but we are understanding this as the moment where God's love to us was shown to be sure. Where his dealing with sin was handled and done. Where we are given a path to life and union with God. And we remember as we walk this path together, as we enter into this week, that there's a juxtaposition right now between our suffering and the glory that we long for. There's a juxtaposition right now between my sin and my longing and desire and even my growing holiness in God. These two things are both real and they're both true and they sit side by side, but they are not equally real. Because the suffering will one day fall away. The sin will one day be dealt with once for all. The sorrows of the world will be judged when Christ returns. They will not last. Both things are true but only one is ultimately true. And this is what we long for, what we hope for, what we pray for in those days of darkness where we are suffering, in those days where our own sin seems too much, in those days when we look at the suffering of others in the world and we say, how long, O Lord, how long? 
and we remember Jesus, who because of the path set before him by God, humbled himself to death on a cross, and we say, this, O Lord, is your way. but it is the very way of salvation. Amen. This was a sermon audio from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church, a community of gospel hope in Fort Collins, Colorado, inviting you to join us around God's table. Find out more online at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.